HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Michter's Distillery. Visit michters.com to find out how their taste is everything, cost be damned, attitude is creating some of the finest whiskeys available. I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. This is Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers, by young farmers, coming to you today from a beautiful lake in Dutchess County. We're on Greenhorns Retreat, planning and using lots of magic markers. Thank you to Alatera for gifting us this beautiful farm to plan on. I am today interviewing on the telephone Mike Summers from uh, Purple Sage Farm in Idaho, who I met at the farmer's market in Idaho. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Hey, it took us thanks a while to do this, but now we did it. Do you want to just introduce yourself and your farm? Sure. Yeah, we're a uh, we're a small farm. We've been in we're in the Treasure Valley outside of Boise, Idaho, about a half hour outside of Boise, and and uh, in a traditional farming community has been going on around in southwestern Idaho here for a long time, and, and uh, so my dad and mom both grew up doing. Uh, in this area, just grew up a couple miles away from where we are now, and uh, yeah, they started the farm in uh, 1989, and uh, it's uh, on uh, 50 acres, and uh, about eight acres of that is a greenhouse and, and a vegetable crop production, and uh, the other 45 or 40 acres is uh, is for pasture for a small herd of uh, sheep that we grow. So, so yeah, we just harvest and uh, grow and harvest uh, fresh herbs and specialty greens. So, yeah. so you're second generation, and you're walking into a bunch of infrastructure, and as I remember it, you are also interested in diversifying the output and doing a bunch of other products, uh, like dried products and value-added products. Do you want to talk a little bit about uh, some of those operations? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm actually like a fourth-generation farmer in the area, uh, and uh, uh, yeah, and, and it come, they, my my parents and my grandparents and my great-grandparents did more commodities and uh, cattle. And uh, my, both of my parents have a marketing degree, and so before they st- 
started uh, farming again, they kind of did the latest research back in the 80s and figured that organic agriculture was an emerging emerging market that that had a lot of opportunity into it. And so in it, and so they they started they started with uh, growing organically and found a niche crop of uh, fresh herbs to to grow that was high value and low volume, something that's good for a small sized farm like ours. And and, uh, and so yeah, they started with fresh herbs traditionally, or you know the traditional fresh herbs that are used in food, and and uh, that lasted for a long time. And I moved back to the farm uh, five years ago, and realized that if I wanted to get paid, I would have to add to what we were doing instead of just kind of kind of live off of what we were already doing. So so yeah, we kind of saw the uh, the open gap in in winter production there was nothing going on in the valley or not very much of anything especially in terms of like growing food and not commodities and so uh so these uh greenhouses kind of make that winter season shorter but it's still a hard thing to get through so doing the value-added products is a great thing so i started with the easiest thing uh, which was drying herbs it's really arid in southwest idaho here they grow a lot of seed in this part of the state, for bigger seed for the rest of the country here, and and uh, and yeah, so so I figured I'd do kind of a similar thing on a much smaller scale, of course, and something that was that was a part of the farm already, doing the herbs. So dried herbs is a natural thing for that, and uh, along with the dried herbs comes a way to do. You got to use it somehow. So so my my thought there is the, uh, making tea with these with these dried herbs. Um, Something that's something a personal passion of mine that I really like tea and, and uh, I like fermentation and took me down the road of uh, making kombucha with the herbs that we grow and so we're in the process of building a commercial kitchen where we can uh, take those herbs that we're drying and turn them into different teas and ferment them and and make a high value, special, unique product and and uh, and have something to sell in January through March when we don't when we're, when we're not harvesting much. So. So, yeah, right on. A lot can happen and, with a commercial kitchen. You know, when I was there, I was really um, pretty, pretty thrilled by, and also freaked out by the agricultural landscape around there, and just the sound of sprinklers going in every direction all day long, all night long, and the river there. Uh, is it the Snake River? Uh, the the Boise River is really close to town, and the Snake River is maybe 40 miles south of where we are, and the Payette River is about 20 miles north. So there's a few rivers. Oh, I guess I drove. I saw. guess I drove all the way to the Snake to go interview that guy Don Huber, the um, oh yeah GMO guy. But I um, so you're near the Boise River. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit about the history of the landscape around you and how? You know, you guys are in greenhouse and in pasture. Um, you know, what are the kind of climate implications or environmental implications of the conventional land practices around there? And what, how are you guys thinking in terms of resiliency um, and drought proofiness uh, on your land? Well, yeah, that's a great question. There's a lot of things that can be that, that are we're always thinking about, and, and uh, yeah, well. We're in a really unique place here in Idaho. It's a desert, and, and and there technically shouldn't be so much green land around here, but uh, there's an amazing uh, irrigation system down here in southwest Idaho to give water to the whole Treasure Valley. And it comes from the Payette River and from the Boise River, 
and it, it kind of flows into the Snake River eventually. And so this is a huge irrigation area, and it's all gravity-fed. There are no large-scale pumping stations for, for giant pumping or for giant irrigation districts. It's all gravity-fed, which is an amazing thing, and there's no place like it in the country. So, so, uh, so yeah, it's a great place for agriculture. Lots of sun, drier conditions, so you don't have as much trouble with pests or weeds or fungus, and, and uh, you have a, the irrigation to keep everything wet in the desert. And so, uh, so yeah, we're, we're right in the middle of that area, and uh, we get our water from Payette Lake up in McCall through the Payette River and through the Black Canyon Reservoir, and that, that, uh, that waters our pasture. Um, for the greenhouse area where we grow vegetables, that's all, for the most part, that, that's all on well and on uh, drip, drip line irrigation. And, and uh, so trying to deliver the water directly to where the plants are and nowhere else so we don't encourage weeds because, you know, if we don't water here, we don't get too many weeds growing. So we just have to be specific about where we set our water. So, so yeah, we have this desert condition. We have good irrigation, and, uh, and so we take advantage of that with the, uh, the greenhouses. Um, really like the desert weather, too. In the wintertime, we can irrigate from the well, and, and uh, we have lots of sunny days out here. And so that makes those greenhouses really, uh, really work. There's no power in them. There's no lighting or heating. It's all through the sun, through what can come through the plastic. And so, so we really focus on watering at specific times of the day, and, and the timing of our planting is in, incredibly critical. Like we're trying to race to get all of our crops in now to, uh, to, to, to uh, grow throughout the winter. So if we get, if we get them to the right size at the right time in the fall, and if the frost hits at the right time, then, then, uh, then, then we can make it through the winter uh, well or not very well, kind of depending. So it's a, it's a gamble every year, but usually, well, we're still here, so it's usually falling in, all, in our favor. So I hope for, hope for this year it hasn't frozen yet, so kind of interesting. And inside those greenhouses, you have, um, like, permanent beds of some of the of the herbs, and then uh, just incredible diversity of herbs and flowers and edible flowers and edible uh, and solid leaves and stuff. Um, could you just talk a little bit about, you know, what it has been like? And I think this may be part of you telling your parents' story, but, you know, did they, are, did they start with 17 kinds of basil or, you know, build an appetite within the, within the culinary community there? Or how did, the, um, how did that diversity come about? Well, uh, a couple different factors have been pushing us to be more diverse, and, and one is from a, our, our product niche kind of requires it, uh, because if you're selling, if you, if you can grow basil really well, you're going to sell more basil if you have the whole line of, the whole product line to go along with it. So, so we're able to sell stuff like marjoram because we have, because we sell basil also. So we have this whole product line that needs to go together, that sells better together than apart. And so uh, that's kind of pushed our diversity from the beginning, is trying to be like the source for uh, fresh herbs in area. And to get established, it took a long time of my parents going to, to uh, visit restaurants every, every week, making deliveries to them a couple times a week and talking to them about what's happening on the farm and having tours of different chef groups come out and talk to people. And so it just took a lot of one-on-one time to uh, kind of kind of make that initial diversity happen. Um, from there, you know, it kind of moved on to other small 
volume, high-value crops like some specialty mustard greens and Malabar spinach and mosh and miner's lettuce and all these things that are hard to find. Um, so, so you know, it's just kind of a progression from from there. And and then uh, this year we've made a big jump in diversity, and and uh, we're putting we're growing a bunch of uh, medicinal herbs, uh, which I have an interest in. I'm interested in in uh, your food being medicine, but also the plants having a lot of. There's just a huge amount of plants out there that have medicine that can be used in different ways and and so i'm exploring right now growing 40 or 50 different kinds of, of uh new species of herbs and seeing how they grow and seeing how to preserve them and, and so growing a new product line to sell i don't know who i'm going to sell it to yet but i'm going to start growing it and find out and then uh, we added some more diversity recently by doing a project with uh the xerces society and the northwest center for alternatives to pesticides and we put in a hedgerow that in the middle of our farm uh, that uh, is about 325 feet long, and it has 115 plants in it, and there's about 37 different species of, of native plants to uh, Idaho and to, to drier climates. And, and so we put all these 115 plants in that bloom at different times of the year and are solely there to, to promote beneficial insects and pollinators. And so, so, it's, uh, so this diversity has... You know, we can make products with it and, and kind of research and, and kind of do what you love, grow interesting plants, and that's a nice thing. But it, and then there's other, other reasons we have diversity is to, to get rid of pests and, 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 uh, and to, to promote beneficial insects and pollination. And, uh, and that, you know, that comes from our own ideals and, and uh, you know, curiosity about what's out there just because we're really interested in growing different things. And, and uh, it comes from the organic certification program that pushes farmers to uh, increase diversity on their farm. And, and, and it, it comes from a lot of things we've read of just how, how, how that's just a, a better way to control, um, control y- your problems, control your pests and your weeds, use natural methods instead of, instead of chemicals. So, so, yeah, it's a huge asset in a lot of different ways. Well, you know, what I kind of want to always talk about, um, it seems like there's a lot of people getting involved in putting in these pollinator pollinator corridors, and, um, you know, there's been a lot of, of research on how sustaining that kind of base agroecology or insect populations, either in a wild area or, you know, marginal area or in a constructed wild corridor, has just tremendous benefits in terms of maintaining uh, less pest pressure and um, just, like, super fundamental to uh, sustainable agriculture is having a wildland aspect and, um, you know, wild place for insects, wild place for birds, et cetera. And, yeah, and sometimes um, that but, means you have to manage it, but a lot of times of that means there, you just have to leave it alone and, and it will take care of itself or know and it, it depends on the place but but there's a lot of spaces on our farm that are bare and look sandy like they're growing nothing but they're actually a great site for ground nesting bees so you can you can put a lot of work into it and put in a whole new hedgerow or you could just do nothing to it or you know manage the noxious weeds but otherwise do nothing to it and and, uh, and just give them a home that's not disturbed so yeah it's important um, well, I guess the question I was having was about logistics. Like, how did you go about getting this Xerxes 
Hedgerow and, you know, was it a lot of work or, you know, how helpful were they? And, you know, could you just interpret a little bit really briefly that process for other growers who might be considering getting in the Hedgerow game? Sure. Yeah, it is, uh, it is definitely a big project. Uh, uh, I got approached by the Xerces Society and, and NCAP because we, we know a woman that works with NCAP and, and uh, she had a, they had a project come up where they had an opportunity to help some farmers do that. And I, they asked me out of a number of farmers and I said yes. And, and uh, so, uh, you know, I, I, you know, it's a thing in farming where you look at a job and you're like, oh, that's going to take a couple hours, and it takes, you know, 10 or 20 hours, and, and that happened a couple times to us. We had to downsize because of uh, other issues on the farm. We were kind of ambitious early in the year about what we could get done, and then conditions on the farm changed. We got busy, and we had to downsize the project that we were going to do with them. But, uh, 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 you know, um, they took care of finding the plants, finding all the different species of plants, and getting someone to grow them for us. And 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 uh, and we took care of we took care of the labor to kind of clear the area and and uh, dig the holes and put the plants in and cover them with straw mulch. And and they took care of getting the drip line for it. And uh, all in all, we spent about 110 hours, 110 hours over the course of a couple months. And that includes, like, yeah, clearing the site, doing site preparation with solar, solarizing plastic laid down on a section of it, and we did some sheet mulching where it's uh, cardboard with straw laid on top of that, and that was on for the summer to uh, prepare the area, clear it of weeds so that we could put in the plants and there wouldn't be as much weed pressure. So, um, so you know, there were... Oh, a lot of parts to it, but a lot of it was kind of right up our alley, too, of a, of a farm, you know. You know how to, like, prepare a new area for growing something, and you know how to transplant as a farmer, typically, hopefully, and, and uh, you know what it takes to keep plants alive. So th- these were all things that were familiar to us. The, the problem was spending 100 hours on it, yeah, and it could have gone easier coming back to it. I would have done a few things different and simpler, and one is not start off with such a big project and step your way up, do a little bit at a time, and, and then get big once you know what you're doing uh, with the hedgerows. But, you know, um, for 325 feet, two lines of plants, it's 118 plants total, and uh, to have a permanent site for that, I mean, in the long run, that's very little time, and, and it's, a, it's a really valuable investment that's going to affect the farm forever. And so 100 hours in a summer, you know, not a big deal to me i see it as we came out on top so yeah i I think a lot of people could do it right on so what's next for you it sounds like it's figuring out how to market all these medicinals i just had an awesome farm tour thanks to hudson valley young farmer coalition at uh, chase home farm and remedy farm where jordan and sarah are both involved in diversification Yeah, it is going to be, it's a big challenge, you know, and I kind of, I'm stepping into it slowly, but it's something I'm passionate about, and that could end up costing me a lot of money in the end, but but I think if I keep going with it and not investing too much into it at the beginning and just kind of being curious and and uh, connecting with the right people, I think it'll work out eventually, if not for all the 40 or 50 new varieties, at least some, and I have a lot of friends in the farming community who are also into that 
this this kind of uh, natural medicine healing with with, uh, with your diet and your food and eating the right plants, not taking drugs, but like actually eating well to to be well. Uh, um, I think it's an emerging market nowadays, and people are getting more interested. People at the farmers market I talk to each week, or I get new people each week who are interested in the different medicinal herbs we're growing, and, and uh, so. Yeah, I have some ideas to connect with nature paths in the area, and uh, I'm getting some employees here on the farm who are interested in this also and have ideas for making products from the medicinal herbs. So I'm trying to do a lot of different things with it and kind of feel an amount, try not to invest too much in, in one thing at the beginning here and, uh, you know, um, providing the raw herb, the raw dried herb to people, but also thinking about ways to process it and make it easier for, for people to use. So. So kind of a diversity in incomes, a diversity in the product line is also a good thing, just like it is in, in, in an ecological sense. So, so we're kind of taken from the natural world to help our business, which is a, a good thing in the farming community. It makes sense to me. So. Well, and these ladies were talking a lot, too, about how, you know, there's all these herbalists, and they are inter- those herbalists are interested in using locally, locally produced and that, you know, right now, a lot of herbalists are getting their herbs off the Internet, even if it's organic, a lot of times from, like, Turkey and um, uh, Oregon and um, uh, rose petals from Bulgaria and, you know, just a little bit of the global supply chain of these ingredients, but that as there's more and more growers, you know, doing, she was doing white sage, and a bunch of Chinese Chinese medicine, medicinals, and Ayurvedic plants, and ashwagandha. And as the volumes get bigger, you know, you're talking like field scale, you know, moving from a couple of bed feet to a couple hundred bed feet, and then, you know, moving into larger volumes, then uh, even regionally there starts to become the possibility for uh, medicines that are local medicine, like from the place, and, and that growers and, and processors start to know each other and that that whole economy can kind of grow. And, you know, certainly one thing to just know is how, you know, if you're getting a scratchy throat and you know that when you take the Ella campaign and the Golden Seal and the Echinacea, you know, you're not going to blink when it's $12 for the little vial. And, yeah. uh, you know, once people have the confidence in their uh, in their health practice, um, you know, it, it, it's worth it to stay healthy. <laughs> so you, you know, it's, it's a value. Yeah. It's really and, a real uh, value that you're offering, and you can charge prices that are that are reasonable. Yeah, there's, um, yeah, there's some other farms who are interested in growing some of these things too, and some farms who have other people who are interested in making medicines from it. And, and we are realizing, you know, that like there is definitely a difference in quality in, in locally grown food and in locally grown. Uh, medicinal herbs, and 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 so um, so you know, we I, there's a woman at the farmers market making different cough syrups and different vinegars, and you know, I bring a, a a bag of fresh steam nettle cut the day before, and she takes it home after the market that day and goes makes vinegars for the next week's market, and and uh, you know that those kind of relationships, it's building off the the food uh, community that that. You know, it's fostered. Comes from the food community, and uh, I think it. it so what? So in this dream life of ecological diversity and herb diversity, and 
dreamy climate and groovy greenhouses. Uh, nothing's ever wrong and it never rains. But what are your what kind of challenges are you guys facing there, um, kind of structurally, in thinking through the next five ten years? Um, you know, uh, as a farm and uh, as a community, and you know, what's the story when it comes to land access, like? Is there room for more new neighbors? Is there opportunity for other new farmers? Um, is there a lot of speculation, consolidation, gentrification, urbanization happening on the landscape? What's the what's the future hold around you? Well, I think, uh, yeah, it's similar to a lot of the country in that it's very hard for new farmers to get started, but it's incredibly important. It's, it's vital, and if we don't get new farmers started, we're going to have a lot of trouble coming up five to ten years from now. And uh, that is one of the biggest challenges in our, in our area, is actually people producing food and not producing commodities or food for cattle. You know, it's producing actual good, healthy vegetables is what everybody needs more of. And, uh, and yeah, it's hard work, you know, and, and it's, you know, my 10 to 20-year plan for myself and our farm is maybe not to be growing vegetables as much and, and, and to be growing something that, that, that suits our interests more and that might be down the line of tea or or growing these interesting herbs that that i want to do other things with um um you know but uh um it's a big it's a big challenge there are definitely markets for it there's definitely more demand than there is supply in our area and and the demand is growing and our supply is growing but but uh it's not going to be i i can see troubles five to ten years from now and yeah the biggest problem is not having land i've I feel incredibly lucky to be in the position I am. I grew up on on this farm, and and uh, now I'm managing it and trying to take advantage of of, of the great um, privilege I have to uh, to work the land, you know, and, and work a land that I can call my family's, you know. So, uh, yeah, there's that, that's definitely a motivating factor for me, and and I, I I just see how hard it is if I didn't have this, and and so uh, I don't know what the solution is there. Well, one. That that I I work a lot with is these is is are these food organizations these local food organizations like farmers markets and like a farmers cooperative I'm a part of called Idaho's Bounty Cooperative and uh, and and these are two organizations that I'm on the board for and and we we are improving our our mission is to improve access to local food and, and to work for these small farms about food so uh, uh, growing food so so you know. Small farmers can get help by banding together and kind of, kind of losing your ego or your independence that might that that might have been driving you to do what you, what where you are now. But uh, but really, it takes small farmers working together in these organizations, teaming up to do distribution, teaming up to have a market where you bring people to a downtown urban area every week and and have a community event related to food. Um, you know, being a part of these organizations is our is our solution to these problems, helping to build up small farmers, incubate them in a small way until they can enter wholesale markets and really start making money that can support a family. And so, so the uh, problem we have on the organizations I'm a part of is everybody on the organizations ten to twenty years older than me, and I'm the only one in my twenties on in in the organ leading or helping run the organization and. And we both boards that I'm on recognize this, and 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 we need to uh, to find more people. And it's a it's a challenge. It's a challenge for me to be a part of these organizations a lot of the time. And 
but uh, but I've made a, the decision and made sacrifices in my life to live on the farm and work for the farm, and and uh, I, I am fulfilled by it. And and, uh, and you know, I, we need other people to be making those decisions. Misery loves. Well, company, you know, it's very interesting. <laughs> I mean, I, when I came other. and visited, you were castrating those um, those little lammies with your grandma, and you know. You and I were getting the lammies and then putting them on your grandma's lap, and then she held them and banded them. And it was a really good example of intergenerational dynamic, and everybody was doing kind of what they could do uh, best. And But I, I do notice that one of the challenges and one of the crucial opportunities when it comes to these organizations, these NGOs, these networks, these kind of facilitation places, um, is how do we honor and work together intergenerationally, honor experience um, and honor different perspectives, um, particularly, you know, for the, um, for the young ones who often feel like the challenges are just so insurmountable when it comes to land access and uh, econo- economic, oppor- you know, um, barriers. Uh, which is really outside of the experience of uh, that generation who got in when the conditions were slightly different. Um, but then also that often the feelings they have are, you know, you guys don't know how to work or not work smart. Uh, and so those are some of the kind of recurring themes that I notice. Do you want to maybe just reflect if there's anything that you notice that maybe was working or wasn't working because um, I think if we can name it, then we can, as we, as we, as you notice that happening in your own work, um, try uh, and, you uh, know, move uh, through uh, it. Um, uh, like, I don't know, like difficulties between the generations working together. Or, yeah, not even necessarily difficulties, just almost like different perspectives, like, uh, you know, how we do outreach. How we, how we're, um, how much of our, how much of our, um, how much possibility we have to find health care, find, you know, how much, how much, um, let me see, how do I say this better? I guess maybe it's just. Well, yeah, there's a lot of challenges in, I see in a lot of ways we could be different people on the outside but but i mean everybody in farming i think has so many values that are aligned with each other like age doesn't seem to be as much as a barrier between uh in in the farming community that i'm a part of and we can all relate you know just by talking about the weather for two minutes and that gets into some deep stuff pretty quickly because it's an integral part of all of our lives and and uh and you know The, the, these organizations need, I like, I would be pretty nervous if I didn't have, or, or things wouldn't work well if we, if we didn't have the experience from, from the people have been, who have been doing it for a long time. And, and uh, ag- Idaho is a very old agricultural community, and there are, there's a huge group of people who have been doing this for a long time, but also there's a very small group of, of, of that group that is actually involved in food production, and the old-timers are really on the outskirts, and I see them not participating in, in, in the food, in the local food movement, because, well, it takes a lot of energy and time 
And so, so there could be more participation by all, I'd say, old and young. And and got it. So kind of the 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 calm. What's that? The long time farming lineage. Uh, You know, don't think that just because you're not out there grubbing garlic that your voice and experience isn't welcome in this conversation. So join on, try try to figure out how to get them to join back in. You know, and I would say especially ones who have land and are interested to see something happen on it. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of crazy-haired young farmers out there who kind of make a lot of the old-time farmers feel a little weird. And, uh, but at the same time, you know, it goes the other way too. So, uh, so yeah, there's, there's challenges, but we got to work together to make it happen. Otherwise it won't. That's good. I think we should make a bumper sticker. Work to ha- work together yeah. to make it happen or else it won't happen. <laughs> um, well, cool. I really appreciate this time together and the time that you guys were so gracious with me. Um, is there any uh, one thing you didn't measure, mention was the Treasure Valley Food Coalition? I know that they were having like harvest events. Uh, if there's people coming out to Idaho who are maybe on their way somewhere across the country or something, do you want to call out some? Uh, cultural festivals or harvest festivals or other happenings in the scene there that they should be trying. I remember you guys were dashing off to fiddle, fiddle, some kind of fiddle camp. Oh, yeah, there's, there's yeah, the summertime, there's a lot of things going on. Uh, yeah, I think that was the Weezer Fiddle Fest, maybe at that time of year, national fiddle competition. And, and uh, yeah, this time of year there have been a lot of harvest festivals each weekend and um, the market through a big harvest moon dinner Recently, uh, I'm not I, off the top of my head. I don't know some exact dates, but uh, if you check the Treasure Valley Food Coalition website, uh, uh, that is a great. That they are a uh, promotional organization that that uh, educates the public on on local food issues and and farming issues. And um, their website's a great resource for uh, what's happening in the in the Treasure Valley relating to, to local food and agriculture. Yeah. And can people order your purple sage dried herbs online, or is it only for local? Uh, right now, our uh, we've we've put a lot into just local sales of uh, of our of our products. Uh, our website is purplesagefarms.com, dot com, and uh, you can find our contact information through there. And I can sure uh, mail dried herbs across the country pretty easily. Uh, the fresh herbs don't work so well or the specialty greens don't really ship across the country as well and we have uh we we have enough demand here in the state that we're not really able to grow too much more but definitely we have a whole list of dried herbs and and we can be contacted through our email or through our phone and 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 uh we can get you connected with a good source for organic herbs of all kinds yeah thank you thank you for 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 stepping up Thank you all for coming on and listening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store. 
by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 non-profit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Baby.